0: excited to be in the house of God today. David said, I was glad when they said to me, let me go to the house of God. I get out of bed of a morning and I'm like, it's church today. And uh, who's been enjoying this series, Living Life on Amber? And Luke's done an amazing job over the last few weeks. And uh, who thought the prayer that he gave you last week was really helpful? Like, that is my husband to a T. You want to be glad I did not give you the prayer last week. You would have all had an A4-sized piece of paper with both sides printed on. The struggle is real when we pray together. He does his four lines, and I'm like, "Is that it? I have got so much to say." And uh, he does the whole fall asleep thing when we are praying together because I go on and on. But you know that's the difference between men and women. But it's been a great series, and. I get the privilege of speaking to you this morning and I want to talk to you um, uh, about uh, on a subject that, that is really something that affects us all. I recently heard this week how there are three types of people. These people are found within the workplace, they are found within the church, these types of people, they are found within our very families and these types of people are undertakers, caretakers and risk-takers, and maybe you will identify yourself in one of these categories. Undertakers, they are the type of people who live life looking at the past, it's okay to reflect on what was, but some people live in what was. They talk about the good old days, they long for the good old days, they are that focused on what has been, they have no more drive and no more passion for anything that is to come. And if we were to put this concept into the current series that we're talking about, these sort of people would be living life on red. These are the sort of people that have just come to a grinding halt in all of their dreams, desires and aspirations. All they can seem to focus on is everything that has been. The next set of people are called caretakers. Now, caretakers live life for today. We're all about the here and now. Those who are caretakers are aware of everything that has been, and you know there is more yet to come, but you are solely focused on what I need today, what I need to get done today, what I need to achieve today, and how today is going to map out. You don't desire what was, but neither do you really have a plan and a vision for your future. You're just living every day as it comes. These type of people are living on amber. You're in a state of in-between. It's not what it was, but you're not where you want to be. You're living your life, but not necessarily the life that you have designed. It's a state of pause. It's a state of this is how it is, and and I'm just going to see what tomorrow brings. And then there are those who are risk-takers. Now, risk-takers are never satisfied Risk-takers are always looking for the more. Risk-takers are those sort of people who are always making new friends. They are always on new adventures. They are always looking to stretch, to grow, to better develop themselves and their personal skills in the workplace, always looking to see what, what, how they can achieve and how they can better their future. This week, I stood at the window of our house as the driving instructor pulled up and Isaac went out to meet him. And I was watching from the window because we live on an extremely busy main road and it was rush hour traffic. And I watched as the instructor got out of the car and let Isaac get behind the wheel. And I thought, my goodness, what a risk. (laughs) I did not know who was the greater risk taker. Isaac for taking his life into his own hands on the main road at rush hour traffic or the instructor for, putting his life, instructor for putting his life in Isaac's hands and putting him behind the wheel. But either way, it was a risk-taker. But then in that moment, I thought, unless you take risks, you get nowhere in life. If you don't take a risk and take a chance on the unknown and try something new, then you will forever remain. And you will forever stay where you are. Risk-takers live life on green. They are always in pursuit of more. Now, there is a difference You know, risk takers are not um, unsatisfied in a negative way. They are just always pursuing the more. They believe their best days are ahead of them. They believe their best days are yet to come. And I want to show you today an obstacle, an obstacle that is in your life, it is in my life, it is in the life of the church. This obstacle will keep you forever living on amber and stopping you from pursuing your green. This obstacle will keep you stayed. It will keep you settled. It will make you remain where you are and stop you from pursuing the life and the blessed life that God has for you. This obstacle that is prevalent in our lives is quite a huge matter, actually. It's quite a big problem. Although it is a big problem, it is very subtle and somewhat insignificant to the point where you don't actually realise it is there. But in order for you to move out of your comfort zone To move your life off pause and away from average and to pursue the life that God has for you and all the goodness that is ahead of you, you're going to have to overcome this one huge yet very subtle obstacle and it is called complacency. Complacency. I'm going to take you to a story in the Bible and we're going to use this story as a metaphor to teach us what complacency looks like in our lives. I want to take you back to where the children of Israel came out of captivity in Egypt and were on the way to their promised land. Now, I don't know what picture you get in your mind when you think about the children of Israel going through the wilderness. The Bible stories we learned at school and The TV movies Hollywood made will give endless desert scenes and sand dunes. And whilst that might have been true in part, did you know the Israelites had to conquer 31 cities on their way to their promised land? They had to go through 31 towns and cities. Each city was fortified. Each city had its own king back in those days. And the Israelites were a huge nation and they had to go into battle and warfare up up against these cities and their rulers in order to get to their promised land. The rulers of these cities, the kings or those who were in charge of the cities were often giants. Oh, yes. Giants were a real thing. They were not just found in fairy tales. Giants were a human race that were of super size thousands of years ago, BC. These are recorded in the Bible as being the Amicalites and the Midianites, the Canaanites, the Rephites, the all of them ites. They were all freak human size Not all of them were, but many of them were. And what would often happen is they would make the giants the kings of the towns because the people perceived the giants to be some form of gods. And uh, you remember when they got up to the borders of the promised land and Moses sent the people in to spy out the land and the report came back and said, they are so big, We look like grasshoppers in their sight because they were the Canaanites. They were of a superhuman size. You know, you and I, we have a promised land. Your promised land looks different to my promised land. But there is something within your spirit that you know that God has promised in your life that you may not have seen come to fruition yet. Maybe for some of you, it's a marriage. You're like, I know that God has promised me a great husband or a great wife, and I've been holding out, and I've been hanging out, and I have not seen that yet. Maybe your promised land is a baby. Maybe that's the thing that you have been holding out for. You can see it in here. You know you're going to be a mom, a dad. It's just not happened yet. Or your promised land, it might be a job or a career change, but something that God has promised to you. But I just want to remind you, You're going to have to take down some giants on the way to your promised land. It's not going to be a straightforward walk. We've got some giants that we have got to take down. And the giants that the Israelites came up against, they weren't like the BFG. They weren't that big dopey, docile, friendly giant. No, 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 these were fierce warriors. These giants that the Israelites had to take out were aggressive. They were mean-spirited. They were angry. They were huge in stature and they had mighty armies behind them. You know, the, the Bible often gives us descriptions as to what some of these giants were like. I mean, when you look at David when he fought Goliath, which is much further on the timeline of history, The Bible will tell us about the size and the stature. Goliath was over nine foot tall. And it would tell us about his stature and his armor and the size of his sword. Goliath was a Philistine. He was a throwback from the giants. But one thing the Bible does also tell us in Deuteronomy is that every battle Israel went into and every giant they come up against, they defeated. They were victorious over And this was remarkable in and of itself because the Israelites were not even an army at this point. They were just regular people like you and I. But God supernaturally gave them the skill set and the strategy to conquer every giant they came up against and to take victory over every army they were fighting against. So at this point, where we pick up the story, Israel are on the move. They're going from Egypt to their promised land, which is Canaan. And so far they have defeated 30 cities. They have taken down 30 giants. And the Bible tells us there was 31 cities between where they left and where they were going to the promised land. That means they have one remaining giant. One giant between them and the promised land. One more battle. One more giant to take down, and they will be at the borders of their promised land. They had survived 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They'd been years and years being nomadic around the wilderness. They had taken down giants. They had overcome cities. And now, this one final battle they have to fight against this one final giant. And the Bible calls him King Og. I know. King Og this one battle that they had to fight was very significant for Israel. It was very significant because it meant that they were on the border, on the cusp of their promised land, on the border of just getting the very thing that they had dreamt of in their heart. They would have a land to call their own. They would have a place to raise their cattle, land to farm and sow their seed and reap their own harvest, a place to build their own homes. They would be able to put their roots down in the land of milkshakes and honey forever. It was a dream come true for them, but they had to overcome this one remaining king. Deuteronomy 3.11 says this, Og, king of Bashan, was the last remaining Rephaite. The Rephaite, again, was another term for the giants. His bed was made of iron, It was over 13 foot long and over 6 foot wide. You can still see it on display in Rabbah of the people of Ammon. The fact that this giant was the last remaining giant for them to take out suggests to me that perhaps he was the fiercest one of all. It suggests to me that perhaps he was of super size. I mean, if his bed was nearly 14 foot, he himself must have been at least 12 foot. Maybe he was the biggest. Maybe he was the meanest. Maybe he was the scariest. Maybe Israel had this mentality, let's leave the scariest to last. And that's why they had not yet taken this one giant out. However, the only detail the Bible gives us about King Og is the size of his bed. It's the only description the Bible gives us about this last remaining giant. When he gives us a description of Goliath, oh, we're told his stature and his size and his big sword and the boom of his voice and cubits and how high he was, how tall he was. It gives us so much detail and of other giants, but Og, we're just told about his bed. But it got me thinking of this. It got me thinking about the greatest enemy that you and I will face in our lifetime. The greatest enemy that you and I will face, the greatest battle that each of us will go into, it's not a big obvious battle that you will come up against. It's not something that's so fierce and so scary that it will intimidate you. It is not an obvious problem that's going to demand a response from you. It's not going to cause you sleepless nights. It's going to, not going to make your knees knock and your body shake with fear. The biggest enemy that you and I will come up against in our lifetime is like King Gog's bed. It's unassuming, it's unintimidating. It's actually quite inviting, and sometimes it's very appealing, because King Og, though he were a real-life giant, his bed is a picture of one of life's biggest killers today, and that is complacency. You know, your bed is the place you go to be refreshed and to be revived, but it is also a place of comfort and procrastination. It is the place you go to when you can't be bothered with what you've got to face. It's the place that you go to when you don't want to deal with the situation that is in front of you. It is the place that you stay when you pull the covers over. Bed is the only thing that comes between you and a good day's hard work. It tells you stay remain. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to get up today calling sick. No. Places, bed is the place you run to when you want to hide from the truth and you want to hide from the reality. Bed is the place where you can't be bothered anymore. Bed is a representative of a state of complacency within your life. And it is a giant, silent, Killer. It is like a Venus flytrap. It lures you in. And once that sucker has you, it's hard to break free from its grip. This giant is unassuming and yet it is incredibly skilled. It is more fatal to you than addiction. It is more fatal to you than immorality or unforgiveness or any other self-destructive sin. This one trumps them all. Complacency is so subtle and so seductive that you are in it before you even realise it. Let me give you an example of what complacency looks like in your life and in my life today. Complacency is, I am just okay with where I'm at. I know it's not how it's supposed to be, but I really can't be bothered doing anything about it. I will just accept the way things are. I remember repeatedly going into high school for parents evening with one of my sons and um, the, the teachers, all of them. I would hear the same thing multiple times over. There is so much more in him. There is so much more potential, but he's just okay with where he is. He is satisfied to remain where he is. If he applied himself, if he pushed himself harder, he will graduate from here with outstanding marks. But right now, he's just going to graduate and he's just going to get a pass because he doesn't want to pull out the more that is in himself. And we go through our life like this, we're just okay complacency It's not where I want to be, things aren't how I want them to be, it's not how I would choose it to be, but it is what it is, and so I just remain. This is my life. I'm only ever going to get a job like this. I wasn't called to do great things like everybody else. This is just who I am. We make excuses for our behavior. We don't change the things we know that we ought to change, because complacency says, well, you know what, it's that estate that you were raised on. That's how you are. That's the caliber of person you are. No, that is a lie. That is complacency. Complacency. I know my walk with God is not where it ought to be. I know that I'm not reading my Bible like I should be. I know that I'm looking at stuff that I shouldn't be. I know that my lifestyle is just not quite matching up to where it ought to be. I know there is so much more in God. I know that I could be doing so much more, reaching so much more. I know that God has so much more for me, but life is what it is. And what people don't know about, you know, I just carry on. I'm complacent. My marriage is what it is. He does his thing and I do my thing. And there's this big elephant in the middle of the room. And we're just not talking about it because... You know, to talk about it's going to involve emotions. She might get upset and he might get angry. So it's much easier to not talk about it. This is just the way our marriage is. And you look at other couples who are loved up and you look at other couples who are winning and you're frustrated because why didn't I marry someone like that? Well, you could be married to someone like that, but you choose not to have the conversations that need to happen in order for your marriage to be that way because you've become complacent. And so you have just settled and said, this is how it is for us. And we do this in our jobs. We do this in our church. We do this in our friendship circles. We do this with our children. We become complacent. And you are being defeated in so many areas of your life, and you don't even realize you're being defeated because the giant and the enemy doesn't look like a big, obvious one. He's so subtle Oh, what about the other giants? If you were fighting the giant of ill health, you'd be all on it. The Bible would be out, the scriptures would be out, you'd have everybody praying, you'd be gung ho going for that thing. I am not going to be defeated in the area of my health. And what about a broken marriage? You're on your knees and you're praying. You've got your friends rallied around. You're going for it. You're fighting this giant the way that you know how. But this is not the giant of a marriage breakdown or financial debt or redundancy. This is the giant of complacency. And this giant has the ability to rob your life right from under your nose without you even perceiving it. He is so unassuming because metaphorically speaking, it looks like a 14 foot long, six foot wide, big bed called complacency. Complacent people are selfish people. And you know, we don't even realize we're being that way. I call them Goldilocks Christians. You remember the story of Goldilocks and the three bears? And the bears had gone out and she enters the house. And the first thing she does is try the porridge. And daddy bear's porridge is too hot or, or something. And Mummy bear's porridge is too sweet. And baby bear's porridge is just right. She helps herself. And then she sits on the chair and daddy bear's chair is too high. Mummy bear's chair is too low. Baby bear's chair is just right. So she sits on the chair and then she goes up to the bedroom And daddy bear's bed's too lumpy and mummy bear's bed's too soft, and baby bear's bed's just right, and she goes to sleep because complacency makes you a selfish person, and it is exhausting when you're living life just for yourself. It is exhausting. And do you know, so many Christians, we live our life like this, but we don't even realise it's all about me. It's all about how I feel and what I'm going through. And I'm going to take a little bit of this, and I'm going to take a little bit of that, and I'm going to try a little bit of this. And I'm just looking for what is satisfying me all of the time. And the enemy loves Goldilocks Christianity Because all the time we're trying, I'll I'll go and serve in this department, but if I get offended in that department, then I'm going to go over and I'll try and serve over here. But if somebody upsets me over here, then I'll go and try this over here. And and I'm not sure. And it's all about how I feel. And the enemy loves Goldilocks Christianity because all the while that we're busy fault finding and trying to self-satisfy, the church is being lulled into a sleep. And nothing is getting done. And the sleeping church is the devil's dream. Do you know, some of you in here, you've fought so hard to be where you are today. Some of you have come through some immense battles just to be here today. Many of you, you've come through broken marriages. Many of you have battled being single parents You've battled through clawing yourselves out of debt. We've had the honour of watching some of you go through your greatest battles and seeing you come out the other side. You've fought for battles of ill health and I want to encourage you. Some of you, you've sacrificed much. You've even fought the battle through the opinions of friends and the criticisms of family just to have a bum on the chair in the house of God today because they don't value or understand your faith journey. But can I encourage you, having done all that you have done and come as far as you have come, don't give in to the subtle giant of complacency right at your last hurdle. Don't give in to that sleeping giant, having done all that you've done. The one who whispers in your ear, you've come through your battle time to sit now. Time to just be fed. Time to just relax. Why don't you just come to church and be a consumer in the house of God rather than being consumed by his presence? That's what complacency says to you. Romans thirteen eleven says, for time is running out and you know it. it is a, and you know it is a strategic hour in human history. It is time for us to wake up, for our full salvation is nearer than when we first believed. In other words, church, it is time to wake up. Do you know what the greatest threat to humanity is? Do you know what the greatest threat to everybody out there who does not yet know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Saviour. It is not their sin that is the greatest threat to them. And it is not the enemy that is the greatest threat to them. It is the sleeping Christians. We are the greatest threat to humanity when our finger is off the pulse, when we're just having a little sleep, when we're just having a little nap, when we intend church, but we have no real intention of making a difference when we choose not to be involved, when we procrastinate, just like King Og's bed. It lures you in. It says, settle down now. You don't have to do anything. You just take a rest. Amos 6 says, how terrible for you who sprawl on ivory beds and lounge on couches, eating the meat of tender lambs from the flock. And verse five in the message says, woe to those who live only for today, indifferent to the fate of others. Woe to the playboys and the playgirls who think life is a party held just for them. Woe to those who are addicted to feeling good, a life without pain, those who are obsessed with looking good and a life without wrinkles. Yes, please. They do not care less about their country, into wreck and ruin. Amos was a prophet, and he is speaking into the life of the Israelite nation. And what he's saying to them here, he's pointing out: you are in a dry place spiritually, but you are in a rich place materially. And because you're in a rich Place materially. You're not crying out, leaning into, and depending on God like you used to. He's reminding them, remember when you came out of Egypt and you had nothing? You lent on God for your everything. You depended on God for everything. You went to God for everything. But now you are comfortable. Now you've built your homes and you've got your palatial places to live in. And you're lounging around on your beds and you're partying hard because God, because life has just got this feel-good factor about it. And because of that, you have stopped leaning into God. It kind of got me thinking a little bit. He's saying to them, you've become complacent. I began to think maybe God doesn't answer my prayer the way I want it in the time frame I want it. Because maybe, maybe there's a part of God that says, but it's actually, that's the only thing that's keeping you connected to me right now. And if I answer that prayer, maybe I won't hear from you for quite some time. Maybe you'll fall into complacency. King Og doesn't kill you with the sword or the spear. He kills you with his king-sized bed of complacency. And Og, this final giant, he's the one thing that stood between the Israelites and their promised land. Just one thing that they had to take out do you know complacency bears a fruit? Complacency grows something. Just just like a garden, if a garden is going to grow, whether you cultivate it and you work hard at it, you can have a garden by design of beautiful flowers. But if you do nothing, if you just became complacent and did nothing, your garden will still grow, but it will grow weeds. Well, your life is the same. You can You can drive your life, you can intentionally pioneer your life, you can work hard at your relationships, work hard in your place of work, you can serve within the church, you can work hard at being a parent or a spouse, or you can just coast through life. You can just attend church, you can just turn up to work, you can just let the kids do what they want and never pay any attention to your marriage. But something is going to grow from it. And the fruit of complacency is called compromise. And we see this even throughout the Bible. The story of David and Bathsheba is one that perhaps most of us would be familiar with. But what happened was David was supposed to be on the battlefield, but complacency settled in. And when complacency settled in, he said to himself, maybe I don't have to go to battle today. Maybe I'll just stay in my palace and rest on my bed And we know that complacency lulled him into a place that he shouldn't have been. And it caused him to be in a time, uh, to be in a place that he shouldn't have been, when he shouldn't have been there. And it ended up causing him to see something that he should not have seen when he looked at Bathsheba. And complacency bore a fruit called compromise. Because from that point on, David compromised who he was. He compromised his walk with God. He compromised his morals and he compromised his values. Samson was another one. Samson, before he had his hair cut off, he compromised who he was because he got complacent in the arms of a woman he should never have been with. And that complacency caused him to fall asleep with his head on her lap. And he lost his strength and he lost his vision because he compromised who he was. In the Bible commentaries, it actually talks about King Gog's bed, would you believe? Of all the things you can find in a Bible commentary, you can find the ins and outs of King Gog's bed. It says that King Gog's bed was made of solid iron. It tells us that it was nearly 14 foot in length and it was over six foot wide. And what they say about this bed is that it would have been imported in from foreign lands, most likely India. They say that this bed was so unique, it was custom made just for that giant. It's the only one of its kind. And is that not what the enemy does for you and I today? He will custom make complacency for your life and your complacency won't look like mine because mine is custom-made for my life. He knows what buttons to press. He knows what to whisper in your ear to lure you in. He knows what to say. He knows how to fluff the pillow up and smooth out the bed sheets and say, hey, just don't do anything in your marriage. It's fine, just chillax. Don't have to worry about those kids. Just leave them to do what they want. Don't go for the promotion in work. You're fine as you are. Everybody's serving in church. Who needs you to serve? Just come and absorb. Just come and be. He custom makes. A life of complacency to stop you pursuing the more that God has put within you. King Saul was a very humble man before God. When he started out on his journey, he was humble before God. He went to God for everything. He lent on God for everything. Every battle, every decision he made, he went before God. But complacency set into his heart when he'd had a taste of wealth and he'd had a taste of wisdom and he'd had a taste of women and also the people would worship him. They they saw him as the number one guy and he got that puffed up and that comfortable with everything that he had, that he became complacent and he stopped relying on God and he stopped going to God for anything and that was the demise of him. And I actually got a shock this week when I looked in the dictionary at what the definition of complacency Really is smugness, self-satisfaction, self-approval, self-admiration, self-congratulation, self-regard, and pride, gloating and pride and others. Do you re- recognize a common word in there? Is self. 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 People that become complacent are all about themselves. So this last remaining giant that Israel had to face, God said to them, don't you ignore him. Don't you leave him out, Israel. You need to take him down. You need to take this one down. And then you're right up to the borders of the promised land. And God said, don't you fear him because I've given him into your hands, which is often what God said before Israel went into battle. In other words, you do all that you can do. Get up Israel, challenge that giant, fight him. I will see to it that you have the victory. But I cannot bring victory to your life if you are just gonna sit there and try and pray the problem away. You need to get up Israel. You need to face the giant and you need to face. Here's what's hilarious, okay? When they defeated the giant, They took his bed as a trophy. Israel had this habit. Well, literally, it wasn't just a habit. It was something that God instructed them to do. And that was when they defeated their enemy, when they took down the giants They took a trophy, I guess, of everyone they had defeated, not as a form of gloating, but it was a way of them remembering that battle and remembering how good God was to them and remembering the victory that God had brought for them. And so in my imagination, I kind of went there and thought, wow, did Israel have like a trophy room? You know, like Anfield has a trophy room. And maybe in in Israel, trophy room. Maybe over years and years and generations, the lads and the dads had walked through the trophy room and the dads would be saying to the lads, you see this one? Oh, I remember when we took this sucker out. There would be on the wall, there would be swords and shields and helmets of every battle and every giant and granddads and dads would tell their sons. I remember how good God was to us in this battle. I remember we never thought we would win this battle. We thought this one was impossible, but God was for us. God was on our side. 31 giants, 30 trophies on the wall. They get to the end of the line and there is this 14 foot bed, six foot wide, iron bed on the floor. And maybe some boy would say, What's that, Dad? I kind of don't know what all these things are. I understand the helmet and the sword. He told me that sword is the one that David took Goliath's head. But what's the bed? Who knows? Maybe the dad would say something like, that's the one that nearly got us. That's the one that we nearly succumbed to. He was the greatest sucker of all. And we've brought that bed to remind every man and woman who is a believer in God Almighty, don't give in to the giant of complacency because God is on your side. Church, stand with me today.